This is Fields of the Future, an interview series by Bard Graduate Center. This season highlights the work of scholars, artists, and educators working with indigenous textiles and textile history of the southwestern United States and Mexico. In this episode, Juliana Bagua Arias speaks with Molly and Lara Manzanares from Tierra Wolves about life as sheep ranchers, the musicality of weaving, and the intersection between business, artistry, and education. Hi, I'm Juliana Fagua Arias. I'm a designer, art historian, and curator. I'm currently a guest in New York City, or Lenape Hoking, the land of the Leni Lenape. I'm thrilled to be talking today to Molly Manzanares, rancher and master handweaver, and with Lara Manzanares, award-winning musician and songwriter and weaver. Both of you are owners of the retail store, workshop, and gallery Tierra Wolves. Hi, Molly and Lara. Thank you for joining us. Hi. Hi. <laughs> thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's great to be here. So my first question, could you tell us what is Tierra Wolves, how it was born and how it has changed over the years? Tierra Wolves is a hand-weaving, spinning, and hand-dyeing workshop. And we started in the early 80s as a group of people. Well, my husband and I grew up in this in the Chama Valley yeah, which is a very beautiful area. It's about 7,200 feet elevation, and the winters are fairly um, severe here. And so, and it's and it's very rural. So it's kind of an economically depressed area. But we grew up here, and we wanted to stay here. And so we started talking with neighbors and and just looking at some of the resources that we have available, and figuring out ways to try to make a living. We we had some sheep at the time. We were raising sheep. And we ended up organizing a nonprofit called Ganados del Valle, which is Flocks of the Valley. And one of the first things that we did was form a wool committee, and Tierra Wools was born from that committee. We started out with a group of people. We never were a co-op. But we operated on cooperative principles a lot. And then in the early 90s, we, the Tierra Wolves separated from Ganados del Valle and became a for-profit, worker-owned. One of the really important ways that it changed in, in that period of time is that we, we didn't pay people to weave up front. We changed to consignment. That changed the face of the business quite a bit. Some of the weavers who who had been weaving before were not excited about that idea of weaving and then waiting for the product to sell before they could get paid. That actually leads me to my next question. I'm really curious about what was the weaving scene like in New Mexico when Tierra Wolves was founded and how it differs or relates to the weaving scene today. There's a long history of weaving in the state in New Mexico. But in the early 80s, I would say there were small pockets of weaving still happening in Chimayo. And in Taos, there were weavers. But I think weaving has been really cyclical. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the market for weaving is very cyclical. It just depends what's happening in the state. Because a lot of the sales that happen with weaving are based on tourism. So it changes a lot in that way. Weaving was a big trade 
you know, a century or so ago. But that was sort of more down in the Rio, Rio Abajo, like Albuquerque area, Albuquerque, Bernalillo. And then, I mean, even before that, before the Spanish conquistadores got here, like, you know, there was weaving going on in the pueblos, but with cotton. So weaving has just, it's been in New Mexico for a really, really long, long time. time. And there was a lot of weavings being produced and being mm-hmm. uh, traded down. That's true. In, uh, they would go to Saltillo, Mexico. And Taos was actually another trade sort center. of trade center for mm-hmm. weavings and stuff. You can see some of the designs that we use here in this area now that have, you know, survived within families, I guess, be- mm-hmm. before Tierra Wolves was started, even in this small area. Oh, definitely. Um, you know, we have the Saltillo-inspired designs of, you know, that come from Saltillo, Mexico. And where does the Vallero star come from? I think that's really from the Chimayo area. Okay. From the Española area. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of tradition, and it goes back really far. But a lot of it stayed within families, even when things weren't that great economically. Yeah. You know, right? Like when Tierra Wool started, mm-hmm. there were some folks who had weaving in their families at the very beginning of Tierra Wools too, right? Mm-hmm. We have a couple of weavers here now who are descended from a line of weavers, but there was mostly they were weaving for home use, just right here in this area. And I'm curious because you mentioned tourism. How does tourism influence what Tierra Wolves sells. How is that process of deciding what types of weavings, for example, what types of materials are you selling? Well, when we first started Tierra Wolves, we had a lot of help from Rachel Brown, who was a weaver in Taos. Her take on things was that everyone has an artist within them. And so we went on a sales trip to New York City because she knew some people there. And I remember her telling me that someone that she had talked to there about selling the weavings had said, oh no, you need to tell people what designs they need to do. You need to set the designs. And and she said, no, that's not going to happen. And so from the beginning of Tierra Wolves, we've always just given a little bit of guidance, but no, we didn't tell people what to, to weave. So I think there there is some influence from tourism because when people come in, they want to buy a certain, you know, they'll buy a certain thing. But I don't know. Over the years, we've just discovered that there's someone for everything. And I sort of look at things from that perspective because I feel like if you can't sell your work, and that comes from us having the sheep and trying to make a living at this and trying to increase economic activity in the area. If you can't sell your work and make it something that can sustain a family, then for me, it doesn't really make any sense. I uh, grew up in that environment too. I started weaving. My mom started teaching me when I was about eight and I was just in the workshop all the time learning from the other weavers. And, uh, and I, so I grew up in this production environment you know, let's wind a warp on the loom. It's how long were the warps? Like 30 yards, 30 yard warp onto the loom. It was like (laughs) a big production with everybody helping. And it was just this huge thing. And then 
you know, don't cut off every weaving, like weave a series of weavings onto the loom before you cut off in order like to not waste warp threads and all, you know, all those things like that. So when I left here actually, and I went to, I guess it was at CCA in San, in San Francisco or Oakland, where I was a teaching assistant for introduction to textiles during grad school. And we were teaching weaving and it was such a contrast for me, <laughs> having grown up in a production environment where it's about making a living. It's also artistic, but making a living is very important. And then um, being in a situation in art school where, I mean, we wound a warp to make one weaving <laughs> for the students, right? It was like one warp and I was just kind of like, whoa. <laughs> uh this uh, like these instincts sort of were coming up like no no we need to like make this big warp because we're gonna waste warp and like we're gonna not gonna make money and like all these things that, <laughs> that I sort of grew up around but but it was also great to be in that situation with the students in in art school because I was able to kind of like step back and appreciate weaving more <laughs> as as an art form and all the possibilities that that there are within it without the pressures of the business part mm -hmm. of it. So that was, that was a really kind of eye-opening for me. It was nice. And actually that's a kind of a funny story because after 34 years, we, we moved from where, from Los Ojos, where we had started Chirraul's to a, another place on highway 84 which more accessible is to traffic, much yeah. more the accessible, other, and we're actually getting a lot of hidden. people, and we're making sales, and it's it's kind of frightening. <laughs> and um, but it's allowed me. I'm 62, and I just now am able to allow myself to actually think about the art more, and actually price weavings as as an art piece rather than you know, figuring how much wool do we have in there? How much time have I spent? But at the same time, we were making beautiful things. Yeah, yeah it <laughs> we wasn't were like, you know, we yeah. were hand dyeing mm -hmm. the yarn and, and yeah. really everybody learned some color and design techniques and, and we were, and we have made beautiful things mm -hmm. over the years. So, yeah. This is actually a, a really interesting segue to my second question, because um, for the podcast, we've interviewed mostly weavers, but Tierra Wools is really the first and the only retail store that we are interviewing. So if you could maybe tell us a little bit more about that sort of business management aspect of weaving. How about, for example, I'm, I'm interested in the customers that Tierra Wools, is it uh, mostly makers, for example, do you have collectors? We have a wide variety of customers because over time we we have started doing classes. So we have a whole group of people who we've developed who come and take a class and then they go home and they, they like the art form and they'll start weaving at home. And so then they order yarn from us or they come through here every summer and they buy yarn. We have a huge following. We have a huge number of supporters, actually. Early on, we did a lot of marketing 
And then gradually, we had a lot of people do articles on us and talk about the whole economic development aspect. And and I don't know, over the years, it's just uh, grown into something. Loyal, yeah, loyal customers. That's It's been around so long, and it's built up a reputation. Uh, and early yeah. on, we, we people would ask us, well, will these increase in value, these weavings? And we were... Yes, yes, they <laughs> definitely will increase in value, but it's actually happening now. Are the educators, for example, for the workshops, the same weavers that create the, you know, the weavings that you sell or what's that relationship with the weavers like? We have about 30 consigners, mm-hmm. but we have, uh, and they're not all weavers, but mostly weavers and we have Nathaniel Chavez and Sofia Diap. Mm-hmm. who work here all the time. And then there's myself and my sister, Tony, who we've here all the time. And then we, some of the main weavers we have are Fred Black and Kathy Strathern, who's create a lot of weavings for sale. And also um, the other one is Savannah Chavez. She's Nathaniel's sister. So I teach, and and Sophia teaches a lot. Sophia Diap teaches a lot, and Nathaniel teaches sometimes. Lara comes in and fills in and teaches as much as she can. Mm -hmm. The people that work here are the people who do everything. (laughs) (laughs) We uh, we we get the yarn made, we dye the yarn, we we weave the yarn, and then we teach other people. But recently we've gotten some people from outside contracted with somebody to come in and teach spinning. And that's yes. really popular. Hand, hand spinning. Hand spinning. It's and a, a big here. part of the of what we do is the churro wool, mm-hmm. which is traditional. And it's a very important part of the, what we do. I want to ask you, so many of the weavers of Tierra Wools were descendants of Spanish settlers in the Rio Grande Valley many of whom produce what is called Rio Grande Blankets. So could you tell us a little bit about that heritage and what characterizes the Rio Grande weaving style? Yeah, well, the churro is a is a part of that. The The wool from the churro was, um, the churro was brought first by the Spaniards when they first came and, but it was adopted and adapted very well to the climate and then the, Navajo people used it. They really liked it. It doesn't take much water to wash it and it takes dye well and it makes a nice lustrous yarn that looks really great in weavings. It kind of had died out. The breed had kind of died out. And so people were using inferior quality of yarn. But we've reintroduced the churros, not us exclusively, but there's been a resurgence of the breed. Mm-hmm. So that wool is a characteristic of the Rio Grande weavings. And then the Rio Grande style loom, it's a treadle loom, a standing walking loom. Walking loom. Yeah. Um, and the design that we use is based on, the, you know, designs that came from Europe, uh, the kind of big walking one. But I mean, there was weaving here, like I said before, there was weaving here already. Um, it's just the weaving before that was more like on a vertical loom. The yeah. looms can, you can get a great deal of tension. So they're mm-hmm. great for doing blankets or rugs, a heavier duty weaving. Mm-hmm. 
and then design. There are certain like stripe patterns, you know, that are more prevalent in like the historical Rio Grande blankets that you'll find from New Mexico and northern New Mexico, certain stripe patterns and uh, dyes, I guess, to mm-hmm. a degree. Uh, indigo, there, there's a lot of blue, you know, ones. If you look at the historical photos and things that are in books, a lot of uh, blue, blue and white and black um, pieces. The other thing about the sheep is the natural colors from mm-hmm. the churros. You can get all, a lot of different shades of grays and blacks and white, you know, and, from white to yeah. black. And like brown, brownish grays. And, and you, you will see yeah. that in the older Rio Grande weavings. Mm-hmm. And then some of the design elements, too, are very typical of Rio Grande weaving. As in the tapestry things, mm-hmm. you mean? Yeah. Yeah, like the saltillo star yeah the vallero star the star yeah and so on the the walking loom we end up with fringe so that's another Mm -hmm. another thing they have fringe as to differentiate between the navajo weavings and the and the rio grande style weavings these will always have fringe and so besides uh being a retail store tierra wolves is also um a workshop so um, could you tell us a little bit more about what type of classes uh, you teach? And I'm really interested in knowing what do you enjoy most about teaching? Right now we do a beginning weaving, a tapestry weaving class. We do the spinning, hand spinning class and a natural dyeing class. We haven't done any, we, we do two kinds of dyeing. We do natural dyes. My sister does the dyeing, Tony, um, using plants that are gathered around here and also some purchased plants. Most of the plants around here give you gray and green, gray and green and yellow, like yellowish, yeah. yellowish. And they're beautiful. But for a little variety, we, we buy indigo and cochineal and matter and get a few different things. And she does a lot of mixing. Mm-hmm. And then we also do commercial dyes, which is a powdered dye. They're called acid dyes because they, they require a small amount of sulfuric acid to make the dye strike the wool. Mm-hmm. And um, so the class is, there's only a class for the natural dyes. Right. Yeah, we don't teach the acid dyes class. Molly Monsonatis and Sofia Diab <laughs> developed a, a, the, I guess, the yarn line, the churro yarn line that we have here in the colors. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're unique formulas and... They're named, each color is named after a, an element from nature, you know, like uh, mice is one one of the yellows. And then there's another one that's pollo, which is a lighter yellow. And anochecer. brown's anochecer is like this, like, it's kind of how the sunset looks here, you know, um, like a purplish, purple, kinda, yeah. yeah, purplish. Uh, also is one of the browns and then pinon is i think a darker brown so whenever i weave with the yarn here i feel like i'm weaving with nature Nature. (laughs) like literally with the colors yeah that's so beautiful i love that yeah Connie Taylor and Molly Monsonatis <laughs> developed the yarn line. But Sophia and Nathaniel are the, are dyers. the dyers. 
So, you know, it's a group effort. Yeah, yeah. that's for sure. Yeah, everything we do here is a group effort. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Except the individual weavings. Well, even that. Yeah, when you're weaving, the yeah, and the warping, you need, you can't really warp one of these looms by yourself. You need at least one other person, maybe a few if it's one of the bigger looms. If you're weaving in the workshop, it's nice because, you know, people go around and check out other people's work and, you know, have little ideas or if you need help, you can, I'm always, if I'm weaving here, I'm always knocking on my mom's door. Mom, help. (laughs) I'm not sure about this. Should I put this orange in there or not? What do you enjoy most about teaching? I enjoy seeing folks go from beginning to end of the class, like, and the, the amount of confidence that they gain in the process from beginning to end. I just like how being part of the development of someone's creativity and just like, you know, celebrating with them when they, uh, when they have a breakthrough or, you know, or they finally realize, oh, I can do it. And, and also being there for them when they are like maybe struggling or getting tired and just kind of like reminding them, like, did you drink any water? (laughs) You know, in the last hour, it's time to take a break. And I don't know, I just, I just like being with, with the people. And, and I like seeing them help each other too. In the same way that the regular weavers here help each other. It's just, really need to have like a few people in the class and see how different everyone is, but also like how they can influence each other and help each other. From the beginning, we've been very open with information in this outfit Mm -hmm. and people come and they say, Oh, can we take pictures? And sure. And when we've had weavers who wove at home, we would teach them to warp. And so they'd, do their own warp and go home. And I know of other weaving places that keep things kind of secretive and they'll wind the warp for them and send them home with the warp. And to me, it's like the more information people can have, the better. And, you know, it's it's not going to affect us negatively. It's going to be a positive thing. And and it's proven true. I think Mm -hmm. it's a good thing. And so... I think that's the main thing that I enjoy when teaching is putting the information out mm-hmm. there and then having the person tell me what I've told them and then asking them questions about, so if this were to happen, what would you do or that kind of thing? Mm-hmm. I just like seeing people become independent, mm-hmm. but I like telling them there are several ways this can be done. This is one way. There was a group of students this past week that I was I was teaching in the tapestry class that had taken the beginning weaving class with me a couple of years ago. So I knew them. And usually in the class, when I've taught, sometimes a thread breaks on the loom or something. And then that's a teaching moment, like it's teach people how to fix this because what if it happens later? But in the beginning weaving class, that hadn't happened and it hadn't happened and it hadn't happened. So... <laughs> So I showed up with the scissors (laughs) and I had told them, don't lay the scissors on your loom near your warp. Like, don't like keep the scissors away from your warp. You don't want any accidents. So when I showed up with the scissors, they were like, (gasps) what (laughs) What are you doing? And I, yeah. So I went and I, um, I don't know if I did it to everyone, but I, you know, went and actually like cut a, cut a thread (laughs) and they were like, "Ah, oh no, what do we do now? And I'm like, well, this I'm showing you so that when, 
after you go home, if you continue weaving, like you will know what to do because and know that like it's not that big of a deal. It can be fixed. <laughs> so I guess I picked that attitude up from my mom. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm also really curious about your family ranch. I grew up in a city. Uh, I grew up in Bogota, very busy you know, bustling city surrounded by buildings. So I'm just curious about what it was like growing up on a sheep ranch. Well, um, my mom grew up, her father was a working cowboy. I'm the one that actually grew up on a sheep ranch. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I grew up in a cattle ranch. Yeah. So, and then I married a sheep herder. So <laughs> it's kind of a funny thing in the, in the West, you know, that doesn't happen that way. Yeah, um, growing up on a sheep ranch was a lot of fun in many ways. It was also hard sometimes, but not in bad ways most of the time. I don't know. I did spend a lot of time in the truck waiting for dad <laughs> to finish doing stuff. Or uh, I think I think it taught resilience quite a bit, resilience and patience um, and we had to be able to enjoy the moment and find ways to enjoy like even situations that maybe weren't ideal, like, like being out in the cold, you know, cause you have to be working with the sheep or something or it's like blowing dust, like a dust storm <laughs> all, all day, but you have to be out there and finish the job and like, if you get hungry, like there's no, there's no Arby's, like you can't like, <laughs> you can't stop or, you know, there's, you can't just like be like, oh, I'm tired. I'm going to like rest and go buy a hamburger. It's like there, there's no, there is no hamburger. <laughs> there is no, like maybe there's a can of Vienna sausages in the truck. <laughs> like you're just going to have to deal with it and you know, wait till we get home at the end of the day or whatever. And then there will be good food that my mom has made from scratch after working outside all day <laughs> with everybody on the ranch. I don't know how you did it, mom. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I, th I think it, I think it really it was a character building experience. What I remember about you guys is is when we would dock lambs and oh yeah and so there's 800 lambs in a pen we've sorted and the dust is thick and so we've sorted everything so all the lambs are in a big pen the ewes are outside but everybody's bawling oh yeah, there's a crying. big yeah it's a, noise yeah and and all the kids are in there they pick up the lambs and hold them and. When the kids weren't big enough, I would hold lambs. And then when they got big enough, I started doing the docking. That's, that's like earmarking them. Earmarking and, and, and castrating. Castrating, and, yeah. And, and um, you know, it's it's uh, it's hard work. It's a hard work, but it, there's, no, there's no stopping, there's like no, she said. It's, yeah. You just do it. The sheep are just like there. And, yeah, there's that. Or when it comes to, like, feeding the orphan lambs or even feeding the sheep, like, there's mouths to feed there's you can't really vacations weren't really a thing but I was really happy that we always made time like like a day long we'd go drive to 
an hour to the nearest town that had a movie theater and like go see a movie. And like, that was our little like mini vacation. We all worked together. And I think that was really important. So overall it was good, but also as an adult, um, it's a hard life. Like as an adult, it's like, do I want to do this? what my parents did and see how hard they worked every day and sacrificed and suffered and tried to figure out how to get money to buy food. <laughs> <laughs> the number of sheep in this, well, actually ranches, the number of ranches is declining in the state all over. Agriculture is the the average age of farmers and ranchers in this country is sixty eight. So mm-hmm. it's uh yeah it's a it's a concern it's cons- of concern to people in the government about how to encourage younger people to do it. But there are a lot of factors that contribute to that, mm-hmm. and part of them are economic, and part of them are just just what Lara was talking about. The, the hard work is. Like when we were doing it, we encouraged them to go to school, go, go to college, go. So then they go and they get a different experience and they figure out there's other things that they, that interest them and that they want to do. And so it's not surprising that they don't really want to come back and do this or, in the yeah, same way that we in did. the same way. That's a, I don't think my body could handle it. <laughs> my mom kind of runs circles around me. It's a rewarding life, I think, but you, you have to be a certain kind of person to enjoy those kinds of rewards, you know, because it's, it's hard. Okay, so I would love to learn more about your own practice as artists, both of you. So first, Laura, could you tell me more about your music? And I'd love to know more about, you know, where you find inspiration for it and what type of stories do you like to share through your music? Well, I'm a singer-songwriter, and I play the guitar and I sing, sometimes alone, sometimes with, you know, part of a, like a trio or even a full band if possible. And the style of music that I sing, I, I do a few different things. I kind of grew up singing Spanish language, like, I guess it's Mexican, New Mexican corridos and rancheras and um in college and later I started to get a little bit more into Nueva Cancion you know went a little further afield so that's something I've done since high school and I used to play at the farmer's markets when my family would go sell meat at the Santa Fe farmer's market I would go set up and and sing yeah we kind of had a little farmer's market band for a little while with a couple of the other vendors. <laughs> so that was that was something that I always did and then um and then I started to write my own songs I don't know maybe I don't know 10 years ago. And at that time though I mean writing songs for me was just a way for me to understand the world, exploring different rhythms and sounds and trying to figure out my internal landscape and express it and then 
as a side effect, I guess. Well, you know, maybe somebody else will hear it and they'll, it will help them too. Um, or they'll relate to it in some way. In the last few years, I've been doing music a little more seriously and um, had the opportunity to create an album of my original music. And it's been well-received, you know, in New Mexico with the people I know and people who buy it. I guess I've got some fans. (laughs) But I have also started to do a little bit more storytelling around... I don't know. Well, I have this song, for example, that's sort of in progress. It's in my notebook, and it's about the shack. There's a shack, an old shack on our property, on the ranch. It was the first building that was there. It's just full of, like, tools and chains and all kinds of stuff right now, and it's kind of falling down. The story was, I think, that there was a couple that lived there at some point, and were ranching, like, way in the 1800s maybe I don't know I don't even know when (laughs) early 1900s early 1900s and it's just this tiny little shack and uh I don't really know anything else about it except that these two people lived there so I started writing a song sort of thinking about the shack and writing a song about maybe these people who were there and sort of what happened in their lives and but it's not really finished because I was writing about these folks and and their beautiful little casita that they had, and they were working hard and, you know, bailing hay and all this stuff. And then, I don't know, at some point the song took a tragic turn. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, oh, no, I don't know if I want this to be a tragedy. (laughs) Maybe it's something about the guy got hurt doing farm work somehow. I don't know. It's kind of unclear. She has a good imagination. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's fascinating. Do you think, for example, both of your creative practices, you know, weaving and music, do you think they intersect in any way? I think they do. Yes, they definitely do. Um, I mean, I was doing music lessons as a kid and then also weaving and playing sports and other things too. But weaving, both weaving and music were very much ingrained in me. As a little kid, like my mom would put me on, you know, next to the loom when she was weaving. She said that it was me. She says that it was because uh, she had to keep an eye on me and make sure I didn't go and eat the dog food. So, so she would put me next to the loom. And just, I remember some of my earliest memories are of being sort of on the floor next to the loom and looking up and seeing the weaving process like from below you know, the warp and the weft shifting and the beater beating and that rhythm of that. Um, And then the rhythm of all the looms in the workshop, because I spent a lot of time as a little kid running around the Sierra Wool's workshop and just the clacking and the sounds of everything, of all the weavers weaving. And um, it was just really exciting. And then when I became a weaver, it's, yeah, it's very rhythmic. And again, the sounds that you're making and all the nuances of sound that are there, not just like the clickety-clackety stuff, but also like the whoosh of the warp and the little textures of different things. And like, so it, it very much is a, this, oh, the spinning wheel. Yeah, that's that's a whole other thing. So yeah, that's definitely part of my internal 
rhythm section, I guess you could say. <laughs> and it, I guess it's influenced my music. I'm sort of starting to do it in a more intentional way to connect the two. I did a performance just a few days before the shutdown. I did a performance where I put contact mics on a loom and on a spinning wheel. And I did a show with my music and a band, but also with the loom and the spinning wheel. And I sort of worked them into the show and used the sounds as part of the concert. She sang La Llorona with the spinning wheel. It was very, it was really nice. I had sort of started getting into that some more and did that show. And it was like, yeah, this is cool. Like, I want to see where this goes. And then everything got shut down. And so that kind of put a damper on things. And Molly, I'm really interested in learning more about your artistic practice as a master weaver. So if you could tell me, you know, what inspires you for your weavings, what kind of images you like to create and anything you'd like to share about it. Well, I spent my whole life on horseback in the mountains outside, and I think that's the main inspiration for my weaving. And also the fact that we have all this yarn and the wool, it's like the colors. I, I remember just putting piles of wool yarn, colored yarn around, and then just putting them together in different ways. That's how we started out for years. That's how we made weaving is just like, figuring out the colors that would would go together and set each other off and I I used to love to do stripes and and figure out like what the different widths would do and the different colors with the different widths of stripes and and the different repetitions or 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 mirror images or that whole thing I think that's I mean that's pretty endlessly fascinating honestly it and weaving is, there's so much to it. I mean, there's so many things that you can do with weaving. And I've sort of limited myself to the Rio Grande weaving and to that loom and to that style and have gone out and I do some pictorial type weavings. But a lot of times I will put them within the framework of a, of a Rio Grande style weaving. And I just love it. I love that. And I I don't have a lot of desire to go out and do anything else because there's so much that can be done within that. And so all the natural colors of the yarn is the other thing that's I, I love to work with those natural colors. And I've done mountain scenes with the just with using natural grays. So it comes out mm-hmm. black and white kind of image. Yeah. And my observation of your weaving my whole life has been that you're very intuitive. <laughs> There's kind of a plan and, and some sketches sometimes, but my mom also de- designs a lot on the fly. Yeah. And it just comes out looking really spectacular. Yeah, I do a rough sketch or or just start with some colors and then I like to, I do. I like mm-hmm. to design on the on the fly. On the fly. Yeah. And I don't and I think about it that much. That. I don't really think of as Lara has pointed out. <laughs> That of myself as an artist that much, but uh, I'm starting to kind of like you that are idea. An artist, mom. <laughs> <laughs> you are for sure an artist. Yeah, and I've learned I've learned a lot from you. I I do some of the intuitive stuff as well. I enjoy doing that. Sometimes, if there's the design is too fixed, then it can get kind of 
boring after a while if you're just like you know it's like coloring you're just kind of uh, sometimes that can be nice if wow. you just kind of want to you know get in the zone of like doing the motions of weaving but after a while you want to like change things up or change your design or I just finished a special order that was it's was three feet wide but seven feet long and it was a repetition and it was only three colors so <laughs> but it's it's like childbirth after it's done you kind of forget the pain <laughs> that's funny you forget really soon yeah I grew up doing the more of the designs that I saw here in Tierra Wolves and stuff but more recently I started to go a little bit into pictorial weaving a little bit and actually was, yeah, kind of channeling some of my um, anxiety anxiety about the world (laughs) into more like artistic pictorial pieces that were, I guess you could say they were political pieces. So that's different. That's not something that Tierra Wolves usually does, but that was my own thing that I was doing sort of activisty kind of stuff. <laughs> I think the only thing I would want to add is that that uh I didn't really mention my husband who raises the sheep. <laughs> and he was instrumental in building everything. He wasn't day to day with Tirols, but he was, you know, very much an integral part of the the whole operation. And he's the sheep rancher. And and I am too. We both do that. And that's always been kind of a hard thing for me is is that I, I am a rancher at heart and sometimes doing the, the back and forth between the ranch and the and the weaving and it and everything is it's, it's a, lot. a lot. It can be a lot. But he's always there. Yeah. Yeah, I think your a partnership with dad is kind of the bedrock of the whole thing i can't Mm -hmm. imagine either of you you know being able to do this without the other yeah 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 they're a really good team antonio yep (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much molly and lara for joining us today for the second season of the fields of the future podcast it's really been a joy and a privilege to speak with you and to learn more about your work Thank you very much. It's been really nice to be here. Thanks for having us. Fields of the Future is brought to you by the Bard Graduate Center, located in New York City, the traditional homelands of the Lenape, Merrick, Canarsie, and Matanaycock and Rockaway Nations. Despite systemic erasures, these lands persist as intertribal trade lands under the stewardship of many nations and over 115,000 intertribal Native American, First Nations, and Indigenous peoples who currently call New York City home. We acknowledge that many cities and institutions in the Americas were founded on the exclusions and erasures of indigenous peoples. In addition, we would like to acknowledge those whose ancestors did not arrive on these lands on their own free will and whose tremendous cultural, economic, and technological contributions continue to provide the foundation of our lives. Our producers are Juliana Fagua Arias and Jesse Mordine Young. Art direction by Jocelyn Lau. Composition and sound editing by Palmer Heffron. With thanks to Laura Minsky, Emily Riley, Amy Estes, Peter Miller, Nadia Rivers, Helen Tang, Maggie Walters, and Susan Weber. Special thanks to Hadley Jensen, whose online exhibition, Shaped by the Loom, 
weaving worlds in the American Southwest was the inspiration for this season. 